And here we are. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hopefully you can all hear us in the live stream chat. Um, we are, we've got a new live stream today. Thank you for joining us on Saturday. Um, welcome to the Scripts and Scribes live stream show. I'm your host, Kevin Fuganaga. Happy Saturday. Thank you for joining us. Before we get started, I just want to say next Saturday, we're hosting another Meet the Manager live stream Q&A with Lit Manager and Producer Lee Stoby. Uh, that's next Saturday, May 15th at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Australia time, if you're interested. Uh, but today, we're talking about representation and independent filmmaking. Our guest is the founder and CEO of management production company Story Driven, where he seeks to support the vision of writers and directors in film, television, and emerging media. As a filmmaker, he has produced indie films alongside Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Salem's Lot horror auteur Toby Hooper, uh, Blair Witch and Godzilla vs. Kong director Adam Wingard, and writer-director-producer E.L. Katz, whose credits include The Haunting of Bly Manor and Small Crimes, both on Netflix, CW Swamp Thing, and Channel Zero on Sci-Fi. His clients include Geo Parsons, who wrote Willy's Wonderland, starring Nicolas Cage, and my friend Brad Keane, actually, uh, screenwriter of The Grudge, Three, Grave Dancers, and Smart House, which sold to Saul creator James Wan and Lionsgate. And his clients have sold and worked for streamers and studios like Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Universal, etc. Welcome to the show, Peter Katz. Thank you for joining us today, Peter. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm a fan, so it's exciting to be here. So I always love listening to the podcast when I was driving through L.A. And yeah. During the pandemic where I was just kind of walking through the suburbs, just kind of like in the dystopian land. Uh, just, but it was inspirational for me. I always love hearing uh, the new shows and perspectives from writers and reps. No, no, that's great. No, I appreciate hearing that. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to see the, the very diverse group of individuals who... who uh, watch now or listen to the podcast. Uh, so no, that's fantastic. Um, and we're great. To, it's, uh, I'm very happy to have you on. Um, because not only are you a lit rep, <clears throat> excuse me, but you have a, a wide range of experience in independent filmmaking, which I think is fantastic. Uh, cause a lot of our audience, uh, really, uh, moves, is, is interested in that arena. So, uh, both of those arenas actually. Um, so you, uh, I'm sure we'll have a lot of wonderful insights uh, and experience to share with us today. Um, if anyone in the chat has questions for Peter, please drop them in the chat just whenever uh, you have them, and I'll try to get them answered whenever possible. To get started, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background, Peter. Um, first off, let's just start at the very beginning, just so we can get to know you a little bit. Uh, what made you want to work uh, in the industry, in Hollywood, and how did you get your start? Well, it goes all the way back to uh, work at my dad's used bookstores in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And I would help out in exchange for like carrying books, like being a little kid book salesman, like just doing whatever he needs me to do. I would also have free time to read books that maybe were like a little more grown up, like Stephen King or Clive Barker and like really get into story. And I think that was the point was the proximity to reading great material. And then on addition to that, we also had a video store called Red Carpet Video in San Diego where they would rent me any movies I want. So I got like education watching films of Keshi Katano or hmm. like uh, Jim Jarmusch, like any of the filmmakers I want to have access to, I got those movies when I was like super young. So it was a combination of reading books, watching movies. And I think that, that really helped me like just kind of like, I don't know, like refine my taste mm -hmm. early on. So I kind of fell in love was storytelling and movies and books and comics. And through that, I think that kind of guided me in a direction of wanting to get into film. And my, actually my first experience 
you know, really getting close to a film set was um, with a, a cinematographer, uh, Joel, who um, was at a local temple that like I met him through like one of the people involved in the temple was like, you should meet this guy. He's a filmmaker and you're like, love movies. So once in a blue moon, I would I would take a train up to L.A. before I could drive to be a production assistant on like rap videos, like very low budget horror movies. And I would like shake cars and make them look like they're driving. I would just clean up trash. But to me, I'm like, this is the best job ever. And then we go back to school and people will be like, so what do you do this weekend? You're like, well, you know, I had to be a zombie in this music video or I had to do this. So to me, like it was a, it was a mix of getting these influences of consuming a lot. And then in addition to that, somehow being able to go on these like indie film shoots and really like get into stuff that I loved, even if it was just helping out in any way, in any capacity. Mm -hmm. So unlike most people that we speak to who basically had to move here from a different part of the country and then search for their first job. You kind of were here, but sort of not. You were in San Diego and you came up to LA and you start, you got your start really early, which is kind of uh, interesting and, and unique. So how did you transition from doing this PA work in San Diego to producing films for, you know, Toby Hooper and Adam Wingard and people like that? Well, like my brother went to uh, film school with Adam and went to uh, mm -hmm. Full Sail and uh, they were uh, their first movie, which is a super low budget slasher that they uh, came together to make. Mm -hmm. um, and that was like the first actual um, feature film. I had even more responsibilities because previously it was like I'm running around doing any type of thing and, you know, but it wasn't like to this, you're not in the mix to that degree. It could be a short film or it could be something like some right out of film school is doing. So uh, working at Homesick was like the first opportunity to really see a feature film start at script level. And it, it was a crazy project. Like if you watch it, you're just like, whoa, it's insane. But like it was like it, it was a lot of influences like Takashi Miki, uh, Toby Hooper was definitely influenced. So it was a very wild vision. And it was really informative to be involved in that film. So it was already happening. So I kind of teamed up early on in the process. And, you know, we shot in Alabama. And that was like, wow, like that's like seeing it all happen. It was, it was very inspirational to watch like these movies come together and like in a real deep level. Before it was more, you kind of like, you come like my friend is a DP. He's like, hey, come on and said, we just need to do something. Let's do, you know, so you're, you're seeing it. But it was almost closer to uh, getting into the mix. And so that was very informative. So, you know, I worked on that. And then the second film that, you know, that we were kind of everyone's kind of teamed up on was called Pop Skull. And it was a very different kind of movie. It was extremely low budget. It was made for only a few thousand dollars, entire wow. feature film. So the first one was like, you know, much bigger crew. And then the second one was extremely stripped down in a way that you know you look at a film like uh you know extreme or you'd say mumblecore or whatever like the term people use I, I don't know what the term is but it's basically just being very pragmatic on a budget hmm. uh, and being able to really efficiently you know put that together and you know a lot of that work i did was more like clearing music rights i wasn't on that set that set was a lot of um super like indie like they would get actors that were locals or friends so it was a it was a movie that was made and designed 
to really work in that sandbox. And, mm. you know, to me, that was really educational because, you know, Adam and my brother brewing it, they took these resources and were able to make it something that was really compelling by working to the advantage of what some people would see as limitations. So like in a lot of ways, sometimes the problem is indie movies try to be big movies. And then they kind of like start becoming watered down experiences. You're like, you can't do things that are big. Don't have the CGI helicopter flying overhead. Don't do that. So I think that like, because it was low budget, Adam created a very aggressively low budget style that was very unique because it's almost like by pushing it to be so psychedelic, it stands out in a way that another movie can't do. So it's almost you use what you think is the budget as a disadvantage to maybe make it as an advantage in how people will perceive it because you're not pushing in directions that show a lack of taste. So I think it's not necessarily a cost thing. It's they were able to make something really special. And then the actors that they brought in were real people and they have a different, you know, way of speaking, a different style. So we can't, it created a very, interesting you know uh experience and i think that's why you know it it was something that that people watch it they could hate it or they could love it but it's aggressively unique and i you know i think a lot of people have liked that and i think in that experience i learned it's like there isn't budget should never be looked at as a negative like it's like a budget's too small it's like but i do think when you look at filmmakers that have really excelled is they look at it and go we're doing something that's more intimate or more unique or more something about it it suddenly has become a strength in how they produce the project versus, oh my God, we can't get 30 locations and dog actors or, or something, you know, it's like, it's like, how do we make that work? So I think that pop school was a good example of a, of low budget being a, really a, a strength to really define Adam's vision. And I think that I've seen, you know, with, you know, my brother and Adam is that that taste could go in any budget and now they do much bigger budgets but the mentality of being able to work it on a super little space is the same mentality as working on a giant budget. Because regardless of the cost, you watch movies that are giant temple films and some of them are terrible. Hmm. The director has bad taste. And sometimes you watch a little intimate indie with like three actors and you know the director has way better taste. So it's not like this budget like this is like this differentiator of like quality. It's really who's how they're spending the money and really how are they designing the script and really thinking it through. So I think a lot's why you see a lot of directors that come out of indie films wind up doing giant budgets because they know you could trust on taste level. Mm, I got you. That makes sense. And I think that's something that a lot of newer filmmakers who want to make an indie film, they tend to think in terms of, I want to make an indie feature and I only have $2,000 and it's this big budget thing. So I'm just going to do my best as opposed to take either coming up with something that fits the budget that they have. If you only have a few thousand dollars, what do you have that you can make properly or maybe shoot a short film, you know, take a scene, shoot a short film from your bigger budget thing because you're not graded on a curve. Nobody looks at this goes, Oh, this looks pretty good. Even though you only had $2,000. No, they want to be blown away, whether it's you had $2,000 or not. So don't, sort of overextend yourself trying to shoot a feature just because you want to shoot a feature if you don't have the resources to do it properly. Um, yeah, and, and and when you have the resources, you could use a short film as a proof of concept. Absolutely. Or or if it's a very lin like indie feature, you go, what are the essentials? And I hate how they sometimes people go, that's a creative producer and that's a line mm -hmm. producer. 
anyone who works in the industry, in my opinion, has is creative. Like you're trying to make it work, and being creative, you have to constantly problem solve. Hmm. So I think that like sometimes I feel the issue of any filmmakers are they're like, why don't we have this extra location or this extra character? And it's like you're gonna in it, you're gonna really be able to hold tone if you only have one location. Like I love the movie The Invitation uh the Karin Kusama film with this cult like thriller but it's in one house hmm. and the one house yes it's a budgetary thing and then you could save money and hold your crew there and really you know like really design it but it's more powerful if you can't leave the house like you're in that location if there was five like homes in that movie you'd be like I don't know it feels a little you know less right. intense it just removes a lot of the tension so I think that like the budgetary mindset really ultimately strengthens your film if you think about what you could execute properly versus because the, the problem i think sometimes directors are they project the movie in their head of what they want but they don't also think about the realities mm. of like time and budget so they're projecting this film that nobody else sees everybody sees them running around with like bad action sequences and stuff but they're projecting just other movies so it's almost better than instead of showing these big set pieces abstract it shoot it through a window do these different things because ultimately if you could showcase your taste as a writer and director once you get bigger budgets you could still keep making it look good but your competition might not have that they might do the bigger budget and they still spread it thing like there's always a cheaper version of how to do it if you're filming the wrong thing right no absolutely now how did you go from producing independent films to working in representation, to being a lit manager. Obviously, your job is also still producing, but also representing those writers and filmmakers now. I think it happened is that, like, I think my personality lent itself towards representation plus producing mm -hmm. more than just producing. Because sometimes, you know, when you're trying to build a, a film project, you could wait a long time and then you get you hit a wall you need actors or the financing like one of those things is like is live or die on a project right but for me what i find so satisfying as being a manager is that i can have projects that i'm not even producing that i'm like they're going out the pitch and there's something kind of exciting to see a pitch happening like it's like all right we got a tv pitch in just two weeks it's ready to go and then you're just like oh my god it's almost like you're just sitting back and watching it and you're, you're just super engaged by it because you have so many different projects moving on different levels. So for me, I rep script writers and directors, but also I rep IP creators, like mm. podcasters, comic writers, authors, or any type of interesting IP. I'll rep them along with uh, the other types of clients. And it, it creates like a lot more of a unique experience to be working with so many different personalities and different you know voices. And for me, I think I transitioned to doing more representation over time because I was like, wow, there's like this client has this story that they want to tell about their family, about their culture. This client is a comic writer. I think this could be an incredible TV show. I could, you know, team up with the right producers. So suddenly like the speed of moving from one project to the next is good for me because I move fast. That's how I think. But if someone's like, hey, Peter, wait on that dream project. It will take 10 years to make. I'm like, oh man, that's too much. I'd rather like take out a project in two weeks and try to sell it to, to buyers. You know, mm -hmm. that's how quick I want to move. So the speed really excites me of how I could change up the dynamics of each individual project and, you know, collaborator. 
but as a producer, I'm still interested. I mean, there's still projects that I'm incubating, but concurrently I'm always engaged because, you know, every day there's like a new thing that's moving because the multiple clients, I will be like, all right, this thing was announced. And then this thing is getting ready to go out. This thing, unfortunately was passed on. Let's move on to the new one. So it keeps challenging me in a way that keeps me excited. And I think that the producing with that is great, but I had to expand out of it because I, I feel like it didn't, it didn't give me the, what I needed, you know, as much as uh, now I feel like there's just much more unique challenges that I have to solve and work out. And I love selling and it, to me, I could just pick up a phone and be like, I got a new project. So every time I have like a new spec or pilot or IP, I always love talking to, you know, producers and executives. So this whole process, I think just felt natural to me overall. So it kind of like the transition felt organic. It wasn't like a, a big thing. It's like, Oh, how about get that client? How about work with that person? I like them in the scene and just started building the roster over time because it just happened instinctual. I just wanted to support people that one, I'm a fan of and two are a good hang. Like we get along that it's like a great collaboration beyond just being, you know, really into their storytelling. Right. Right. Uh, now I have a number of questions, both in terms of your work in representation management, as well as uh, producing independent film mm -hmm. filmmaking and stuff. But we got our first question here from the chat from Theo Luoma, who asked uh, or says, thanks for doing this. Um, what are you looking for in a new client? How would you suggest a writer make that connection? All right. I think there's a couple of ways to making a connection. One, which I think is great friend game, is if you know someone personally on the roster of a manager. So you could be like, oh my God, like I like this voice of what kind of work they're curating. They're working my friend, which is also a good way to validate, you know, who they are and what mm. they're about because you already trust somebody. So that's one way, which is probably the best way. I get uh, clients uh, from friends that are executives and agents, producers, different people will send recommendations. So that goes through like my network, but then concurrently, you know, I get emails once in a blue moon where I'm like, this person's interesting, but I do think that like the way to reach out to a, a manager, you just have to really know um, what they dig because sometimes, you know, I'll get an email and I'll be like, Hey, I wrote this thing it has nothing to do with the types of creators you represent, but you want to rep me. And I'm like, well, you know, there's a lot of different types of managers out there and they have different sensibilities. So I think it's just really knowing their work. Mm -hmm. And then also you really want to know when you're looking at a manager, what, what does their day look like? Like, you know, it's like, sometimes I think that like I get an email and it's super long and it's like three pages and it's all this information. And to me, I'm like, whoa, like I can't, I want it to be like something that could fit on my iPhone that I'm just quickly going through emails and I go, that's a cool log line. And then maybe in addition to that, there's something interesting. Like I'm not just a script writer. I had comics that were published by like image or I was a, a writer's assistant. There's some type of signal that's interesting. So it's basically give me the log line and a signal that is valuable. Not like, Hey, here's a, hundred contests that I placed very low in that you just want to know, like, I want to know, like you won it or like, I want to know, like, if it's something that like, it's important, but I think it's less is more because ultimately I'm just going to be going, does this concept sell 
to the market? Like, is this something that I'm thinking about? Like, I know exactly who'd want to work with you on it. Then I know it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe the idea isn't great, but the perspective is really interesting. So maybe I want to know more because the person is very interesting. Maybe they came from a world, they were an investment banker and now they're a script writer. So that's kind of interesting too, is that their origin story means that they come of a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And you had just mentioned that there are different managers with different sensibilities. How would you describe your sensibility? Okay. Okay. First off, I want to make, make it totally clear. I love everything. I love documentaries. I love watching rom-coms. I watch everything, right? But as a manager, I get truly excited about the world of genre. You know, I want thrillers and crime and science fiction. That's going to get me interested. Hmm. And if you look at the clients I represent, you could see that the movies that they're associated with are in the genre space. That's who I work with. If you see the recent work or announcements or anything, it's like action, crime, thrillers. Like that's all I do. So when you see that, and that's not just with the scriptwriters and directors, all the IP creators that I rep, I repped a, just started repping um, a short story author whose work is already being optioned by mm-hmm. producers to pitch for film and TV. The writer writes exactly in that space I occupy, but don't. But but one thing I want to be totally obvious about: it doesn't need to be like, well, you just give that person a slasher. It doesn't need to be obvious. It could also be left to center. So it could be a story that's environmental. Uh, you know, it has those themes, but it's science fiction. Or it doesn't mm-hmm. need to be when you think it's just one thing. It, it's like a very wide spectrum, and that's what keeps my work interesting is each client is coming from a different place. So it's not like, don't think that means it has to be, you know, the same thing. You could completely subvert all my expectations, but the world I work in typically is going to be where people are going to be looking for a haunted house movie, or they're looking for, you know, you know, something that's completely action packed. This space is what I've occupied for a while. So my relationships are in it. So if somebody is looking for a, a person who does documentaries or that's their focus. I don't really work in doc, you know? Mm-hmm. So then if someone's like, I need to rep me of my doc career as a director, I love docs, but I really kind of, because I'm a boutique, I can't do everything. I mean, I have to focus on what gets me passionate in my space, but there's managers that rep all sorts of different types of creators. And then they'll be excited to work with you, but just to be effective in your search for, you know, building your team, you should really understand uh, their collaborators, their announcements around them, watch their interviews. You'll see a, a specific vision of curation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see here. Uh, Ron Hatcher asked, spec script versus graphic novel. Which format would help a middle-aged newbie like me land a rep? Okay, I think that like both are a really unique art form mm-hmm. you know i love comics i grew up on them and you know i also love reading scripts so i think the thing is the story could exist in different ways where does it most naturally fit because the quality of the experience is going to get you the rep and mm-hmm. ideally maybe some type of accolade so let's say with a script if it places high at contest or of a comic, you're getting great reviews and people are excited about it. 
or it has like a serious publisher, like a dark horse or somebody behind it, those are going to work. But I think it really is based on what the story needs for it to be successful, not this form and then kind of retrofit it. I got you. That makes sense. In other words, don't pick whichever medium you think will be better received. Do the one that feels most natural for the story you're trying to tell. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. Um, Clint Williams. Uh, hey, Clint uh, says, thanks for your time. Do you manage or scout websites like Coverfly, Ink Tip, or The Blacklist? Or is that just wishful thinking by wannabe screenwriters? It's not wishful thinking. Plenty of managers take on clients through those platforms. I have actually uh, signed uh, some writers from Coverfly uh, recently, you know, mm. uh, you know, during this, you know, crazy year. I've, I've signed a few uh, clients and I've been successful with them. You know, it's it's gone well. I like the the back and forth that I've had with the executives at Coverfly. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I've worked with them and and I've signed some clients. So it's not wishful thinking at all. I think it's, it's, it's a, if you think about it, if you're looking to rep directors and you go on Vimeo and you see like staff picks of short films, it's the same way. I mean, what other way can you showcase your work as a writer as effectively that's indexed like the blacklist or cover flyer or others. So it's just in a way, if you look to your filmmaker friends and how they're getting, trying to get their work out, typically a short films, music videos, commercials, they're using that to get their reps. It's the same way a writer. It's just a, an easy way that, you know, managers can engage of work. Hmm. Um, let's see. Uh, from Discord, David Wales asked, what kind of project does Peter's company want to take on in the next few years? Is there any specific budget, genre, or medium that he's especially interested in? Um, you had talked about specifically, you know, genre films having a, a, uh, an appeal for you because that's sort of the arena you primarily work in. Um, is there anything, any genres uh, specifically that that you prefer uh, that you're looking for, uh, budgets, mediums, uh, that kind of thing? I think that it's all across the board, mm-hmm. um, regards to the type of project. It depends on the, the writer. If I connect with them and they get me super excited, I'm like, Oh my God, this like this idea I can't get out of my head. It's really about me reacting to something that's, I don't know exists, but then I find out about it. And if somebody is telling me, Hey, you got to rep this writer. They're great. I read it. And then if I feel it's pretty good, I don't take on a client. I have to be like, wow, this is like, this changes how I look at, you know, whatever there's, you know, taking on. Is this a heist film that I've never seen how they do the heist film? There's something about it that sticks to me. So I can't forecast what that's going to be, but I can only say is the, the common denominator is it's in the genre space. And, mm-hmm. and that could be, I take on a client who wrote an incredible comic book or made a podcast. And then I take that piece of work to either, you know, produce myself or take it to, you know, potential production companies. So for me, it's just reacting to what I never expected. So it's the surprise of the creator is getting me excited 
and it's not the um, it's not that I'm like this is my ten year plan of the types of things that I'm doing. It's a really about the discovery process. Hmm. Um, what is the best part about being a lit rep? I think the best part is every day is unique hmm. and every collaborator has a different approach to telling stories. So I always just love learning from them. You know, I love learning from my collaborators, uh, whether or not it's my clients or I'm working with producers or executives or working with other reps or anything. I just love learning from all these different, really brilliant people that are all doing something unique um, in this industry. And that, and that, and that, that really is, gets me interested into the situation working with people that I've always looked up to, like looking to working with icons and people that I'm also just a fan of their work. So like, I mean, that puts me in a great place and just the general industry evolving the cross section between media and technology that's just pushing all sorts of new ways to experience, you know, storytelling. Like now we live in a world where I could go on Netflix with my wife and watch Call My Agent. And it's a show, you know, it's a, a show that was, show, you know, it's a show for a whole different markets in France. And then in America, I'm watching it and I'm loving it. And then I'm on Twitter. I see people all over the world loving this show that wasn't, I don't think they knew it was going to be hit everywhere, you know, but it's a great show. So it's this idea that like out of the blue Netflix, Netflix created a way that this global audience could experience a incredible TV show all at the same time. And then social media is the campfire experience where we could all talk about it. Right. So that to me, that's a facet of our business that inspires me. So that's why I like being a manager is because I'm like, everything's always changing and it's just so dynamic. Mm-hmm. And what's the most challenging part about being a manager? I think the most challenging part about being a manager is that there are all these different sensibilities, right? And there's, there's this, there's always like different trends and what's what, what people want or what people don't want. And I think that like, there are always interesting uh, exceptions of things that break out that no one predicted. It's like, we don't want anthologies and then it's black mirror. So, I think what's a little challenging is trying to find ways to innovate when you have a system that is not, doesn't want risks. So it's like, we want, we want the noisy idea. We want to cut through the clutter, but then we don't want to take a risk. So it's like, it's hard to do two things. So I think for me, that's why I love working in IP is that if you create a great short story, uh, you know, a podcast, you're basically incubating these ideas and you're building out the the viability of something. And then you could take something that's potentially riskier into the system. So not only do I curate clients who create IP, I develop IP. I'm thinking of what could be good. It's a short story or what, because then it could enter the system easier. Mm. So I think that the the challenge is there's a hunger for new, but there's also a fear of it. And the ways that you could circumvent that anxiety, you know, it's how you could sell a movie to a studio, mm-hmm. you know, because you have the right concept and then it's in that form. So for me, I don't look at story as those are comics. Those are podcasts. These are the scripts. It's like, I feel story is fluid and it could live in all these different platforms and the most successful companies understand that how that migrates the different 
you know, ways that you experience it. So for me, I feel, yeah, the risk is the hard part, but then there's also ways to circumvent it by making it easier to understand, under building out the fan base, the communities around it. And by doing that, you're going to create value and then be the thing that everyone gets attention to. Because if everyone's going left and then you're the one going right, but you're able to find out ways to go right, then if it gets going and builds traction, you're you're making a bigger success because it's it stands out. Mm-hmm. Uh, which leads to another question here by Theo Luoma. <clears throat> which IP film shows have made you excited recently? I think that there is um I think that one of the the shows that I really liked, um, The Boys, was in a comic by Garf Ennis that hmm. that was such a crazy show on Amazon. I was watching, I was like, How did that get made? That's so <laughs> wild, you know, it's it's such like subversive dark comedy uh, in the superhero genre. I love that one. So that was definitely a uh, a comic adaptation that I immediately uh, responded to. And then there's some some remakes uh, that I'm curious about that I, I don't know how that will work. Um, there's a uh, a film on Netflix called The Hater uh, as a foreign kind of thriller that I think that um, Vertigo is going to try to adapt at HBO into a TV show. So I'm actually been really interested in the idea of movies as source material for television uh, with that. And um, I'm really curious how this really intense thriller as a movie, which is like you watch it, you enjoy the experience, it's well made, how that auteur vision transfers into a series. So to me, uh, there's certain things that I like, and now I'm looking to certain um, adaptations that I, I'm going to find interesting. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to also ask about IPs. If Because you represent creators of IPs who are not necessarily writers themselves, although maybe they are hoping to be, but some may not. I mean, who knows? Uh, depending on the client, I'm assuming. If somebody has I, an IP that you're excited about, uh, but maybe they they may or may not be interested in developing it themselves, meaning writing the, the pilot for, the script for, whatever... Uh, or maybe they're just not experienced enough. Is that something that you in-house would team them with another writer in your stable of your roster? Yeah, absolutely. Or if I have a great piece of IP, I could go directly to the production company. Mm, That's true. And if they have the right vision for it, then partner them up and then, you know, start going out. So I'm not going to name names, but I have a project right now. It's a comic book. And we have really amazing scriptwriters that were brought on from the production company. And now we're just building the pitch. Mm. So, and we're getting that uh, ready. And the comic creators don't write scripts. They write, you know, comics or they mm. write novels. So it's a very special project, but they're just finding people that share that same vision that they have, you know, with how they're going to like continue into adapting it for the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. Augusto Amador asked, what do you think the main attributes or buzzwords that showrunners want to hear when they interview writers to staff? I think that the key is articulating that you're a great collaborator, you know, and particularly you work as, in the mm-hmm. team because it is a team sport. And I think that it's not necessarily a buzzword. It's, it's just how you want to make people feel 
and that you're addressing their vision. So it's not mm -hmm. necessarily you just going, this is what I'm about. It's you bringing your, your potential collaborator out and getting to know what's important to them and then adapting to that. So it's more reactive than you're exerting something on the person saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. Um, it's more about going, Hey, like, this is why I'm a great collaborator. What's your vision and asking those right questions and then being able to take that information and kind of work with it. Because I think sometimes when people are doing like any type of meetings in this industry, you can't just come up with a script and go, this is who I am. You have to be able to let them understand that if they work with you, you're going to be the problem solver. You're going to make their life easier uh, and you're creative and you have a vision. So I think that's the key is really trying to understand them. And obviously you want to talk about your own story, but you really want to know what their goals are. Mm -hmm. And another thing is just from my experience talking to a number of showrunners is define who you are as, as an individual, because they're hiring you for your perspective, for your point of view, not necessarily that you went to such and such a film school or you won such and such and such an award, but what's your background? Where do you come from? Uh, do you have, were your parents divorced? Are they still married? Are you coming from, you know, an Indian reservation that you lived on or your dad, you're come from a long line of police officers in your family. What is it about you that you can bring a special perspective to that writer's room that they may not already have? So there's some. Yeah. And that's the opposite of like the buzzword because the buzzword is like a template. Anybody could sure. use that word. Mm -hmm. But if you say, Hey, I grew up watching sci-fi films. I lived, you know, I lived in, you know, Thailand, or I, I was working in a, in a mine in America, or I was doing whatever it was, your experience, or like, I'm a mom, I have two kids, and this is my experience, I used to be in the military, like, whatever you mm -hmm. are bringing to the table is your uniqueness. So it's, you want to bring, you want to establish who you are, and you want to know who they are, you know, but I don't think these templates work, I think they're, they kind of feel, you know, sometimes fake, because someone's like, this is the way I'm going to talk about it. But it doesn't really feel like you. I think you want to be the the advantage you have is there's nobody else like you. Yeah, and there's nobody else like that showrunner. So you got to find out what's important to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Ron Hatcher said or asked, "What are some red flags you've seen fly across your desk? What turns you off as a rep producer?" Okay, the things that I that turn me off is that they don't know who I am if they're trying to pitch me. Like mm. that, it's like really know who I am. And you could see when it's like this weird, like spam email kind of, where it's like <laughs> you just copied and pasted a hundred managers names on it. I mean, there needs to be a specific way that you're engaging with me. Just going back to the template with the showrunners, managers don't want to go. You just said, Peter, you could have said Barry or something. You just right. like dropped it in because then you're like, you're not really thinking about that. That's not, um, that doesn't make sense. The other things that I don't like, uh, at least when I talk about red flags, I mean, there's different ways, but speaking to like just getting an email, don't send me 20 log lines. Like, I don't need that. Like, that's not my job to curate what you're going to, um, you know, have me pick out. I didn't, I didn't approach you. What I want is to be one of your best ideas that you know has tested well, whether or not it's on like the blacklist or cover fly or friends and family or whatever, that you know this is your strongest piece of material. I don't need to be like, uh, which one is the good one? Because I'm getting emails from like real work <laughs> situations that I don't need to think about all these different options. Right. There's a kind of the way you, you want is don't make me think. Hmm. Um, the other thing that I think should be an obvious, and that's sometimes when you talk to people, 
don't trash your old collaborators. Like, don't be like, hey, uh, oh my God, that director I worked with is an idiot and that agent. And, and you know, you start saying all that, you go, hmm, all right, that's a negative, <laughs> out. Like, I don't want to work with somebody who's that down on their collaborators. It's just not, it's, it's a huge red flag. Um, Derek Jones asked, are you finding it easier to get your clients TV writing assignments or feature writing assignments? I'm, I'm guessing he means during, uh, the pandemic maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I didn't really sense that there was an issue on that. The area where there was a problem was, hmm. um, when there was indie films that were ready to get financed hmm. and had the agency hmm. behind them and stuff that because of the pandemic, that's what was really um, frustrating is that you would be like, all right, let's, let's get this movie going. And then it would just stop. And you're like, well, we got a killer virus out. You're like, okay, I totally get it. But like the other areas, film and TV and the development side were fine, but it was only when it got right to that production, you know, right to the point where, you know, you're working with some producers and they can't do anything. So that was one of the biggest challenges of this time was those realities, uh, you know, getting that next step for, you know, say a movie is ready to go. That was the area where I was like, oh, man, I, you know, this is this is just, you know, I can't wait to this be over with. Then people could be running around film sets and be safe, you know. So that that was one of the big challenges. How is it looking now and going forward, especially because it does sound like a lot of stuff is back in production not all of it but you know it's starting to move in that direction it's starting to pick up momentum how does that look in terms of uh you know tv writing and and feature productions and things like that i think the general attitude is more positive i'm seeing more activity mm -hmm. i'm seeing people more excited to go out you know with, with their pitches i just see there's a movement versus i think and there was a little bit of kind of wait and see and now it's, we're not there yet, so I'm not going to be overly positive. Like, it's, everything's great. You know, there's still challenges internationally, you know, in certain areas of film. I don't think it's perfect, but I do feel that the general attitude in the States has been way more positive. Mm -hmm. And I'd heard that the costs incurred for all the COVID uh, safety requirements and things like that is actually substantial. Has that adversely affected independent films whose budgets are obviously smaller than bigger studio films uh, more severely. And is that going to drag on a little bit longer? Has that made it harder to get an independent film greenlit and, and into production? I don't know how long it's going to drag on for. I know that the costs are, you know, makes it challenging to mm -hmm. make these movies, but they're still making indie films. Sure. It's just harder, you know. Um, people want to get these movies made, and it's a business, and it's going to keep keep rolling. But you know, it just makes it so the people involved are, are are juggling even more than they ever did, and it's already hard to make a film, you know. So it's never an easy thing. It just makes it more of a complex process and more costly. But it's going to keep happening, you know. Mm -hmm. They keep moving forward, and one day, hopefully not going to be an extra cost at all it's just you know things are going to normalize but currently it seems to be still something that will take your budget and just like bring it up to another to another you know cost that you didn't maybe think about when you first started trying to produce the film right uh, a lot of 
independent uh, filmmakers out there or writers, filmmakers who are unrepresented will often reach out to production companies to try to get reads, to try to get developed. Do you have any advice for those uh, writers out there to get their projects looked at, to get their scripts looked at, to try to get developed? Okay, there's different ways. I think that the key is utilizing the platforms like Coverfly, Blacklist, and using that as a way for your work to get discovered because I think that helps out a lot and do the contest. I think going directly to the production companies is kind of challenging because you're taking on a risk if you're, you know, a producer that's just getting a bunch of unsolicited material. I mean, even with a script release, they don't know who you are. You haven't been recommended and you're a big part of the the team. So you're providing this, your work. So I think there's a level of trust. So I think these contests, and these platforms remove some of the risk of mm. somebody's new. You know, you're able to like look on one of these platforms and look at the person's, you know, contest, their background. And then other things that you should think about too is your social media. I do think that, you know, especially Twitter is kind of like your business card. You know, if you're a writer, if you could uh, also make sure that your Twitter how you present yourself is your voice and you don't have to, I mean, it could just be a personal one if you want, but there is an opportunity that people could look at your approach, you know, to writing and they can engage with it uh, in like, you know, because different parts of Twitter, there's like, if you write in the world of comedy or in the horror genre, you could like riff on movies and TV shows. So in some ways it's almost like networking without having to leave your couch. So, when you don't do it in like an obnoxious way where you're just bugging someone, but you're just talking, you're, you're adding value. You're, you're giving commentary on a favorite film or a show, or, you know, you're riffing in a big conversation. There are people that could look at you and go, who's this person? This person is really smart. And, you know, I've met writers who have teamed up with really serious collaborators just because they're good at Twitter. I'm not saying you have to be, but I'm saying it's just one Avenue. So it's like, really being able to like have that presentation uh, on Twitter, but also having a website that's very clean that also organizes all your information isn't good. So you have your Twitter, your website, the contest, these cover fly blacklist, all those things. If you do them on a regular basis and you're really maintaining it, I think there's value there and you should also keep writing. So each time you write a new script, drop it on a new contest. This, I would think the one problem that sometimes people, they look to their one project as their end all and then mm. like years go by and they're using that to pedal. But I think each new project you write is a conversation starter. And then the other thing that I would keep in mind too is um, making content. Like, can you make things like if you're a great writer and you have a buddy who directs commercials or you meet, you see a commercial director in, in your town or whatever, you, wherever you live, reach out to them. So networking, I think sometimes people think networking is someone's over here and then I got to get to them. That's fine. I mean, that's networking to some degree, but it's also, there's also sideways networking where you're like, I'm here as a writer. I've gotten my work option by some small producers. Nothing's going on. I don't have reps, but I met this director who just came out of film school and does really cool short films. Why don't we team up and make some stuff together? So I think that like everything sometimes feels it needs to be like huge and industry made and like that staff approval doesn't. 
you find collaborators that are hungry for scripts and they want to bring their production savviness or if they're comedians or actors, you could find people in your community that are in the same scene as you and then work with them and then make things and just throw them online and not think about them. And they might not even be a big movie. Mm-hmm. It's like weird web content that you make or something made for like social media. But I don't think you should wait for like this rep gatekeeper. I think that obviously what I mentioned about getting your work out there, the platforms, the contests, Twitter, but then it's just collaborating with other people who just could go on a weekend and make something. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, look at a band. There's bands out there that have no record label deal. They don't tour. But they play at a dive bar. They go out there, they play at a dive bar or they play some music, they drop it on SoundCloud. They're just making things. And then they might tour a little bit and they might get bigger then they go on a bigger tour. There's no reason if filmmakers can't be like a band. They mm. get together, they riff, they make things, you write something and you just put it out there. Because the more active you are, I almost look at it like you're shaking up molecules. Because the more molecules you shake up, all these things start happening because you're doing different things. But if you go, I got that one project, I'm not doing anything but like looking at it or I'm waiting on these queries from the manager. The thing is managers and agents and the whole industry, they amplify force. But you build something that has value, they, you know, they'll amplify it. So I think the key is what can you do about anybody's permission on your own? And then once you bring in the industry, you've already started creating momentum because you're on Twitter, the contests are ranked, you create some short films, people are talking about them. Is your you're doing things without anyone. You're like this train that just keeps moving and you could go, Hey manager, you can get on this train or not. It doesn't matter or whoever, but the trains just can keep moving. That's the mentality. But if you're like, we got to wait to get that. Okay. It's like, I think that's really distracting. Right. And you had mentioned social media. How often do you, when you're considering signing a client, look at the social media and what kind of red flags do you see? Or what would be a red flag? I would say, like, if someone's just talking talking badly about oh. other people's movies, I don't – I want to be, like, in a situation where, like, politically, like, you don't take on the client and then suddenly beef happens or there's problems. Because if someone's like, this is the worst movie ever, or blah, 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 super negative, we all kind of work in the same field. I mean, I respect film critics. It's an art form. But if you're like trashing indie movies that other people are like making, you don't want that attitude. So it's like, that's baggage to me. It's like overly negative about what's out there. And I don't mean that you can't be critical of bad films, but there's this general attitude where someone's like, oh, this is who wrote that? They're an idiot. Like, I don't want, I don't want any of that because it, to me, I go, if they talk like that on Twitter, which is so public, are they going to be saying stuff in meetings that are just like not going to, you know, vibe with, potential employers. So I, I just want a positive uh, presence. And like I said, you could have a critique of a thing, but just general negativity on the social media would probably be something that I'd be confused by. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's like what I want to deal with. And I don't mean that someone has to always be happy or can't have an attitude, but if it's just like, uh, you're just riffing nonstop about your scene. If say you're, you write like horror films, that director's not good or that's bad. Like, to me, I don't like that because I don't publicly do that about other filmmakers and people. So I think I, w- I want people that are good writers too, that if they're on Twitter, like I, I'm reading their, their their perspective because you think about it, social media is like a plug into someone's brain. You're like just tapped in. And if they're really like getting you thinking or they're, you're laughing or like you, it's almost like in a way it's kind of a writer sample uh, mm. in how you present yourself. 
Um, let's see here. Uh, Ron Hatcher says, uh, I swear this is my last question. No need, Ron. Keep asking whatever you got. Um, what is a ballpark budget for an indie film these days, uh, or indie these days? What are some ways we can tailor our scripts to that smaller ballpark? Okay. I don't think that there is a template for what a low budget film looks like, but I think what helps is to watch a lot of recent low budget films, Hmm. watch what's out there and go, okay, like they had one location, three actors, no dogs, no baby. Like, it's like there's certain things that they're like clearly like, um, designed it. Okay. There isn't a lot of visual effects. It's mainly practical. Um, you know, there's a certain aesthetic they achieved. It's not period. So there's certain basics, right? But I think the key to being able to make these low budget movies is to read the press, not just on like the big Sundance movie, because there's a lot of great film festivals out there that aren't like, we are the top one. There's also ones that are like regional and you should just reach out to some of these filmmakers making low budget films and to see how they did it. Talk to them. See what worked, what didn't work. But it's an experiment. The technology keeps changing. Like, your workflow in post is going to be different now than it was like 10 years ago. So I think the key is watching films that came out recently that are low budget, reading the interviews with the people involved, and then just reaching out to them. Ideally, the ones that are probably smaller that didn't have like that giant hit, they might be happy to talk about their film. And then you could learn from their mistakes you can learn what from worked and then you may have an, even a collaborator because you're, you're talking to somebody new, but I think the key is really being having that dialogue and really invest in that. What kind of movie, but if you look at a movie that's very old, it may have been shot on film. They may not even be relevant. The, the way they made it may not be the typical way they do it. Now it's, you know, mostly film is, is become a, a, a rarity uh, regards to, you know, the medium that people choose. So I think, getting becoming an expert on the low budget films and you could see look low budget film you'll see like lists and you you look at indie films you could tell we're low budget and then you put yourself out there and you watch them and the more you dig in that helps and also talking to keys don't just wait to make your film even if you're a writer it might hard to be friends of a production designer or dp and just talk about your ideas and talk about what it could be even if you're not directing it know what kind of like how how big your movie is and then you could design it by seeing the filmmakers, what they've done, getting their advice, talking to keys, and then you get all that. And then you go, all right, this is how I'm going to design the script mm-hmm. for, let's say, a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars. But each one is a different challenge, you know. But you want to be able to have that information. So you say you go, I want to write a one million dollar film. I think the invitation was one million dollars. So then watch movies that are about a million dollars, and then do that. If you want to do a movie for like a hundred thousand dollars. There's movies that are made for $30,000. Then talk to those filmmakers. But I think you really got to dig in and there isn't like a template answer. You got to do the footwork and you got to make these new relationships to know, you know, what your options are currently as a filmmaker. Right. Plus, I think in terms of low budget versus micro budget, which are just sort of lumped into low budget, whether it's something one to 10 million, if you're talking about low budget, if you're talking about ultra low budget, a million to a hundred thousand, maybe to, 
you know, micro budget, which is, could be literally like pop skull, um, was a few thousand dollars. Or we yeah. actually did an interview a few months back with uh, a filmmaker who did a film called Outback in Australia, who did it for a few thousand dollars on his credit cards kind of thing. Um, he didn't have a ton of money, but ended up selling it to Lionsgate, you know, just came up with an idea that was just kind of cool and uh, did it himself. So I think it's, it's, you know, ways you can tailor your scripts to smaller budgets. I think if you're doing a micro budget feature, you want to do it yourself. It comes down to like you had mentioned fewer locations. Don't bring in a ton of visual effects and kind of things like that, that cost a ton. Um, the fewer actors and characters you have, the the cheaper and faster it's going to shoot. Um, no dogs and children. Cause they obviously are very, very costly and, and difficult to work with. And uh, uh, work with what you have. I remember Robert Rodriguez. Read uh, Rebel Without a Crew by Robert Rodriguez, the book. Well, we'll link it below if you don't know about it. It's it's a great book about how he made uh, Des- no El Mariachi, you know. And he used a wheelchair for a dolly. And, you know, basically he used the resources that he, he knew he could get kind of thing. And so, you know, those are just some of the, the basic steps. But, you know, there's there's ways to do it. But then again, other people would say, don't write to that write what your story is and let it be what it is as opposed to just trying to write something on the cheap but i mean it totally depends on what your goal is i guess too um let's see here uh clint williams uh if there is oh time yes there's time a question specific to coverfly uh what sort of ranking catches the eye of industry professionals top 10 percent top one percent four scripts in the top 10 percent what would you say? I think it's, I evaluate a mix of signals mm. and then also I look at the concept, you know, what, it, what is that, you know, hook? Why am I interested to read it? It's kind of like, I look at a log line, like a trailer to a movie mm. and, you know, on the weekend I have all these options. I could watch any movie. It's all streaming. And what is it about the trailer that gets me to watch one movie versus another? I mean, a log line has that same power over me. So there's 10 log lines. Which one pre- presents something that's different that makes me want to uh, read the script? So I think it's how you present yourself on there, but also the performance of it. So like if something's 1% and I'm not interested in the idea, doesn't doesn't really compel me to read it. It has to have a combination of those different factors. So it sounds like ultimately the logline is king regardless of of whatever rank is, but whatever the better ranking you can get is more you're more likely to attract eyeballs. Period. Absolutely, so, yeah. Gotcha. Um, let's see here. Uh, Theo had another question. I've been working on a narrative horror podcast to be able to showcase my stories as I write screenplays. Do you think this is a solid strategy? I think it is, but I also think that just creating IP is, hmm. of course, it's important, but you should also create a marketing plan for it. Hmm. Like, how are you going to get press? How are you going to reach the community of fans of audio dramas? Because I think sometimes people are like, okay, here's my comic or here's my thing. But I do think that you should have that and you should go, how do I make that even more valuable? In the same way, like you think about like script writers, they could be on the blacklist, the blood list. Um, there's other contests. So they could take a script and then the value can increase because everyone's indifferent until they know why they should get into something. IP is the same way. 
podcasts, there's lots of podcasts now. I can't even keep up. And I'm a huge fan of the, the medium. It's just a new one made every day. So I think the, the key is you should create a marketing plan that that's sustainable. It's not like a, just a burst of information is like, I'm creating this assets to put out there. You know, um, one of my favorite marketing people is Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, who's a thought leader in marketing. And you can look at his blogs. He'll just tell you about how to like work each, you know, social media, each blog entry, how anything he's going to be able to angle. I mean, he's one individual, there's others, but that kind of mindset where you go, I'm making it, but I'm also marketing it. And the more it gets validated by other podcasters mm-hmm. that are respected by journalists, by people on Reddit communities, the more you build that value around it, it's so much easier for you to then sell it as a show or use it as a sample. But if it's just, Hey, I have a podcast it's not as compelling. Like I have clients that have had a podcast covered by the BBC. So when I go out with IP, I'm like, it's covered by in these incredible, you know, you know, we got this incredible coverage. So there needs to be something. It can't just be, Hey, I made it because people are like, well, you just have a book. What do you self publish it? Which is fine to self publish a book. But then what is it about the book? Like if it's on Wattpad, which is a platform for authors that you could use too, if you're interested in, in writing like short stories and books, you have a ranking. So if a book just explodes in popularity, it doesn't matter if it's published by like a top publishing company or it's on their self-published is because it's picked up enough traction that someone could take to the industry and make, make moves. So I think it's make it good and then also figure out how to market it and then also maintain the community that you built around it. And I don't mean a ton of people. You get up 80 super fans. How do you maintain those 80 super fans? But the more activity that's swirling around IP, the more likely it has a chance of being adapted, you know, or at least a conversation starter with a rep or a producer. You talk a lot about uh, marketing and, and in terms of IP and things. Uh, and obviously it's show business. It's, it's not show art. It's show business. You know, everyone has to, the reason that most people are involved in it, it uh, or so many people are interested in it is because it's uh, there's there's money to be made. There's a living to be made while doing something creative. Um, what I wanted to ask you is for those writers out there who aren't necessarily involved in IP, they don't have a comic book or a novel, a manuscript, a podcast, whatever, just a screenwriter, uh, whether it's features or TV, whatever it happens to be. How would you suggest or what would you recommend for those writers to sort of market themselves, network themselves? What avenues should they be looking into? Because it's obviously different. You're not necessarily marketing for the mass mass market like you would for a graphic novel, for example, or uh, you know something they put out on uh, Wattpad or, or Amazon and uh, whatever it is, the, the independent publishing service that they offer. Uh, they're literally targeting companies producers uh to to buy their script to have it produced so that it can become something that's marketable to the mass public Uh, so what would you suggest or or what advice would you have for those writers out there to sort of market themselves and or their material um, or you know is networking really what it comes down to i think networking is huge Mm -hmm. and i do i think that the more specific you could define where you want to write if you don't have like a very collective uh, approach to what you write, 
let's say there there are worlds that you could occupy like let's say you write comedy like ucb the you know i know i don't know what the upright citizens brigade is doing now with the pandemic but there was a time where hopefully this stuff will clear up that people are working there or taking classes is that's just a great community for making friends you know that love comedy and i think that's like a really cool way i mean I, for just fun, took an improv class. I really enjoyed it. So it's just like a cool, vibrant community. But at the same time, like, if you're like, hey, I work in the I work in the horror genre, there are people out there that are so geeked out, you know? They're like, I, you know, there's horror trivia that I was a part of back in the day. Uh, um, I don't know where it's at now. Hopefully that will clear up too. Uh, there is, uh, there's the New Beverly. There's, there's all these, like, communities that if you go, all right, I'm all about documentaries. There's like a, there was a doc meetup, I think mm-hmm. once every few months that uh, was going on. So there's all these different scenes in LA. There's all these different really creative people. And if you just focus on the area that you write in, there are spots that you could work in that are cool. Now talking about branding, I think going back to Twitter, I think Twitter is important. Um, there's like script writing Twitter. And then there's also specific genres like if you write for the horror genre there's also mm. that type of script right so it like you could drill down to super specific areas um as a writer so i recommend you know looking at twitter as a way to one showcase your voice as a writer and just writing things that are meaningful to you and two um there's a networking potential because if people respond to how you write you might be able to make some new friends you know other areas that I think are important for writers and not a necessity is doing some journalism, like oh. write about film, write about comedy, write about areas that are interesting to you, write about your culture. The more you write and then you put it out there, it gets people interested and it might not even be, uh, it has to be in like the New Yorker. It could just be you write on your blog. So you have like, you have this professional website that showcases who you are and then some writing. So it's not just your script, it's your perspective. I signed a client who wrote in some incredible blogs. He just wrote it for himself. And I was like, this is a great writer. And that was it. There wasn't, the writing itself got my attention. It didn't need to even be wrapped into some prestigious outlet, which is great if you could do it, but just writing uh, on medium is fine. But I think the more you write and have perspectives, the more you have vision. Because I love how people go, the director is the auteur. I mean, a writer, in my opinion, is an auteur. They have a vision. They have a perspective and how can you articulate the way you look at the world, maybe even before they read your script, there's an art to it. And you see like very established like showrunners and, you know, writers of huge temple movies. They have Twitter accounts that really showcase their voice. Why not have that as part of your arsenal? Because that's who you are. So I think those things are important with brands is having that, that writing and, and, and staying busy. And then also, it doesn't hurt to do like little collaborations, writing writing with people uh, that you like or writing with like a director or writing like a short film is that you're not reliant on, is this gonna land on the number one at Coverfly or is this gonna be on the blacklist? And you're like, no, I got my buddy, we work together. You know, when we're done with the shift, me and them are gonna go out and just make something. We're gonna shoot something, turn a line, we're gonna like rip. It's like, it's being active and really occupying scenes that you like. But I think the key is not just going, I'm a writer of scripts. Mm. Why can't you create an email newsletter where you curate articles that you find interesting? You have excuses to engage with people. 
Um, why don't you create a podcast uh, where you talk to people? Like whatever you do, like stand out, be creative and get your, uh, get your work out there. And I think that's the key because if you're just waiting, that's the worst thing. You almost want to like, you want to exert yourself onto the world mm -hmm. versus going, I sent those 30 emails, the managers, all right, I'm waiting. That's not the way to do it. You want to be like, oh my God, I curated my favorite, you know, crime films from the nineties on this Twitter thread. And then I wrote this and, you know, staying active. So somebody has a point of reference because, you know, every time you talk to somebody on a general, just a regular conversation with someone in business, they're going to look you up because they want to know what you're about. Mm -hmm. So if someone looks me up, they're going to be like, all right, okay, manager, we get that. They love art. Uh, they love uh, they love this type of music. So there's movies that they like. There's like a there's a way in to like talking to somebody versus right. I don't know what the person's doing. I don't know what they're about. So I think you really want to make sure it's easy to navigate your identity that you present like confidently out into the world. So then it's easier to really go. Is this the type of writer I want to work with? Because it sets a tone. Like the internet is the real world. And you mentioned uh, branding the term branding and identity, uh, which I think is is relevant and, in, and important, something that I think a lot of writers, newer writers especially, don't necessarily gravitate towards or understand. Uh, we did get a comment on a previous video, a previous podcast, where we were talking to our guest and the question was sort of advice for newer writers. And the advice was to sort of find what you're really good at, what you're best at, and focus on that, that one area, that medium, that genre, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and the comment was, why? If, if I'm excellent at a bunch of different things, it's called diversity. Why can't I, why shouldn't I be proud of the fact that I can write drama really well? I mean, didn't specify drama, but, you know, write in different genres, different mediums or different whatever really, really well. And so I wanted to get your take on that in terms of because the advice we'd gotten and the advice I've gotten from a number of managers and, and agents and reps uh, across the board uh, is to focus on, on that one, especially for newer writers. Obviously, if you're Shonda Rhimes, you can do whatever you want to do. And if you want to write uh, a workplace comedy and you're Shonda Rhimes, who's going to tell her no, right? Uh, if you're Ryan Murphy, you can do anything because you're freaking Ryan Murphy, right? But for the most writers, I mean, if you are thinking David Simon, you're thinking of crime dramas, right? That's what he's great at. And if you're looking for crime dramas, we want to develop a crime drama. He's at the top of your list, right? And when you're taking meetings with 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 uh, network executives and producers, they all have lists. Who are, we're developing a sci-fi project. Who are my best sci-fi? Who are my buddy comedy writer? Who are my, right? And if you are great at five different things, how are they going to identify you, right? Because everyone wants the what is the old saying the jack of all trades master of none well they want the masters of their crafts not oh this person's pretty good at five different things even if that writer thinks that they're excellent at five different things chances are most writers are really really excellent at one thing maybe two or if you're ryan murphy you have a bunch of things but very few but what is your take on that like when you're advising a, a new client like you sign a new client because of of a, a spec that you've written that's great and in they say well i have this action comedy, I have this thriller, I have this uh, romantic melodrama, I have this, and they're all great, and I want to write for all these things, send me out for everything. What What is your advice to that writer? Or what would you say to that writer? 
so there's different stages mm -hmm. where that advice means different things. Sure. So I'm going to start off at the earliest stage. Say you've been um, a photographer your whole life and you go, I want to be a writer. I just don't know exactly what my voice is as a mm -hmm. writer. I don't want to put so much pressure on somebody who's kind of feeling themselves, getting a sense of what they like and what they don't like. I want it to be like as loose as possible. And that's not a potential client. It's just somebody who wants to develop their voice. So that's like out of the, they're not, I'm not in the market to sign that type of writer, maybe at some point. Then there's the writer that, that I speak to about, you know, their vision of what they want out of their career. And they say, hey, I write grounded sci-fi. I'll go, that's interesting to me because that's, that gets me excited. I mm -hmm. love that, you know, space. They go, I write sci-fi and 30 other genres and have specs all over the place, all these different things. I'll ask them, I'll be like, so if you got traction, is this what you want to write? The more of the stuff that I like. And they go, maybe, uh, you know, I don't know. I might just want to do like a bunch of coming of age dramas. And I'll be like, you know what? I'm not the manager for you because mm -hmm. I'm in the genre space. That's what gets me like, you know, passionate, you know, to go out of material it has that quality. So I think that like reps look at success and they want to get the success, mm. but they want to keep rolling the success into new things. It's kind of like Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, you see Sonic gets the, <laughs> you know, Little gets rings. that momentum and just wants to keep, keep going and going and get and just winning, you know, getting all the rings. So that's how I look at the writers. They get that one win. You just want to keep rolling into new wins. You don't want them to get it. And they go, all right, we're stopping. Now we're doing something entirely different. You want to be able to get enough of a foothold in the space that they have opportunities mm -hmm. and they can do them. And at some point they may transcend that genre that they occupy, but that's after they've built a business. But to me, if you're talking about when I look at a possible collaborator, I don't, I don't connect with somebody who wants to write everything if it's not in the world I work in. So mm -hmm. it just doesn't make any sense uh, because if they want to write all sorts of types of genres and I go, why don't you focus on the one that we're getting attention with one success attracts more success. If somebody makes the best sports movie ever, they might get more sports movies, you know, or at least the thematic qualities of that sports movie will get them attention in a different way, but it's still, there's some connective tissue. They don't want someone that is, doesn't relate to any of their success. You know, they don't want someone to make it, get there and then just start over again each time right you want to be able to keep going bigger and better every time more money more prestige bigger collaborators so for me as a manager that is very serious i i, I don't want to take it lightly if someone wants to write everything i'm not saying that that's bad and there may be somebody out there as a rep who just wants to experiment with that client and see what happens and, and they're fine with having such a eclectic uh mix of material but I'll tell you this, a lot of people I talk to or fellow reps, they're not going to want to have something that they can't take to market mm. because it's just not defined. Yeah. And I think what you, you were talking about earlier, somebody who sends you a query and has 20 different specs on it. It's the kind of thing where if, and, and again, I'm generalizing, maybe there is somebody out there who's really brilliant at every single genre on known demand and 
you know, again, like Ryan Murphy, but they're, they're sort of that, that diamond in the mine. They're very, very rare. Most writers are good at one or two things. And it's not to say that they couldn't transition. Like if David Simon wanted to write a comedy, I'm sure he could do it and probably do it well because he's, he's brilliant. That being said, he's known for something and he's a master at that craft. Um, and I mean, and I guess he did, you know, he, he has done other things other than The Wire, but obviously The Wire is brilliant. But he's he's very well established and known for that. And I think when you're starting out in your career, it's not to say in your, later in your career you can't transition to do other things, but when you're starting out in your career, most reps that I've spoken to, if not, I don't want to say all, but it's almost all, want you to focus on one thing because they know that... If they're talking, like you said, if you're they're talking to uh, uh, a network exec, and they send you out for something that that network exec is looking for, for you know we're doing a new comedy, a sitcom, we want sitcom comedy writers. You send them a half hour. Well, then a few months from now, when they're looking for a drama writer for a different show, they send out a drama sample. And it's like, wait, I already put this guy on my comedy list. How is he? And all of a sudden, it's, it's just unless they're both amazing, which Again, it's, you know, as, as writers, sometimes you, you don't evaluate your material as, as, as uh, the same way that reps do. You know, so it, it, makes, it puts write, uh, reps in a difficult position because they're trying to get you work and get you known for something, to be known for something um, and build a career that way as opposed to, I mean, and maybe you're great at a bunch of different things and you want to do a bunch of things. But when you're starting out, it does definitely help to focus on that one thing that you're best at and most comfortable with. Well, yeah, that's what I want. Yeah. That's what I want a writer. I want them to come out and be like, this is what I do. This is why I have a unique way of doing it. And that's the person that I want. Yeah. I don't want, I don't want somebody who's like, Oh my God, I, I can do everything, but really <laughs> mediocre. And I'm like, mm, uh, I'll, I'll pass. Right. Well, the thing is they think that they can do everything incredibly well. But the reality for most writers, 99.999% of them, is that one or two of them may be their specialty, and the other eight, nine different genres that they write may not may be passable. But that's not necessarily going to help you as a, as, a, as a rep when you're trying to sell the, their romantic comedy that's like mediocre when they've got a great horror script sitting right there kind of thing. And, and what happens when that writer gets an announcement? You sold mm-hmm. a project to a studio. And it's specifically a genre that now they don't want to write in. And then what are you going to do with that announcement? Right. right. And then you've you can't take it, it anywhere. Yeah. And you've expended a lot of the, all that energy developing that part of their career because they had a great horror spec and they don't even want to do that now. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. That makes it, that makes it very difficult. Yeah. So yeah, I, I tend to get people who I feel are masters of the genre that they occupy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's see. Ron's got another question. Uh, Ron Hatcher says, what are, what about pseudonyms? Are there any writers out there doing the Daft Punk or Gorillas thing? Um, by which I mean the writer's persona is in, is in and of itself a character. I have a client like that actually. Oh, cool. And they want to, they want to write that way and it's fine. It's an expression of their identity and I'm hundred percent behind it. I didn't encourage it. I'm not, you know, building these <laughs> names and stuff, but uh, it's what they want to do. So when I go out with scripts, they have it. Um, you could also actually have those not 100% in the same way, but if you're, you know, there could be a big writer with your name and you don't want to get mixed up with them. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, 
in the commercial world, there's a lot of like directors that are like that. They'll go by a single name or they'll, you know, go by their teams of like uh, brothers or, you know, a team of directors that work together. I think one was called Tractor, the K, I think, something like that. Anyway, so yeah, it's definitely, definitely out there. Um, uh, We're sort of running short on time and I appreciate you spending your time with us. I do want to sort of wrap up with a, a, a couple things on what is your best advice out there for the newer writer, for the emerging writer out there who is looking to sign representation? Because that's obviously the first step, not the last step, as a lot of writers think. It's like, oh, I signed with with Peter. Now I'm just going to wait for my checks to roll in. That's not the way it works. But when they've made, they know that's the, the next step. That's the step that they need to get to to sort of open more doors and and, and get their work seen by more people who can you know, make decisions, decision makers. What is your advice out there to those writers out there who are just beginning their search for representation? I think the key is building a structure of a routine of how you write and then get feedback, do rewrites, and then, you know, do your work. That way where you're basically, you start at one stage early on in the process and you really go, what, what am I going to uh, write next? And putting a little time into that. Sometimes I think that the writers will be like, oh my God, I just have an idea. Let's just do it. But they put all the work into rewrites. But the reality is it's kind of like dressing up. You know, we all were put on clothes and we, the first time you meet somebody, your first impression is, is very important, you know, because you, you think about somebody when you see them and go, what kind of person are they? person is you know anybody's not reading a script just reading a script they want to know the title they want to know the log line and that's kind of what gets them interested in to do more and whether or not you send it to a contest or reps or anybody is like why should i read this hmm. why should i care now i don't mean you need a, an idea that is so esoteric and weird that no one's ever heard before it could just be a cool way that you're approaching a getaway film or like where people are on the run, but your way you're doing it's different. So it's almost like you, you, I see the mistake is they spend so much time on the script, but they're not having the conversation around the idea, the title. You should start with that and go, is this the right one? And have a few of them and have them compete against each other. Should I do this one or that one? Talk to people, look up. Is there another thing like that on, you know, out there? Has it been announced? So your idea is, could, if I just said this, I send it to someone, they go, oh my God, I want to read it. Like, wait, six months. <laughs> Not saying you should do that, but they would at least go, oh, this sounds cool. I, I would look forward to reading it at some point. So it's making sure you really identified why anybody would want to read it. Hmm. You know, why is the logline interesting? You know, what is it about the title? Getting that and really get that right on the one side and really test it out and really look it up to make sure you're not just doing the same thing. Then the next part is write it, get the drafts, get feedback, and then push it as far as you could go. Contest, cover file, all that stuff. And then it hits a wall and you're waiting and waiting. Maybe a rep has it or producer. You know what you do? Rinse and repeat. Go mm-hmm. back, find the best idea. And ideally, back to what we were saying before, it's all in the same genre. So it's almost like when you ultimately have some generals, you know, reps and producers and executives, you have like four awesome horse scripts. You sell one. You got another one going. I mean, reps are going to want to see that you have ideally have a body at work. I mean, that's the best case scenario because then if they get success, they could keep rolling into new success. 
So my advice is having a routine of identifying ideas, getting in the way they need. And then if you want to creating a writer's group to help you do the feedback process. So you could just do this over and over again in the feedback process. And then your scripts will end up on contests, platforms, your social media is engaged and just keep doing that over and over again, I think is, is very important. And it's not that complicated. Like there's plenty of uh, writers that get repped off contest or these platforms. So if the work is good, you know, I don't think it's the point where you're in, you know, there's this huge disconnect between getting work in front of these reps and will you ever do it? No. I mean, if the script's awesome, the cover fly is showcasing the best work, same with blacklist. These contests are ranking them. So if you put out a script and it has zero traction, maybe you should put that one down and write a new one because this isn't a, an operation where it's, this isn't like you're going to end up and you have your law degree, you know, you put in the time and then it's not, you could spend six months on a script that you think everyone's going to hate. They love it. Your career blows up or you could spend five years of multiple mm -hmm. scripts. No one likes it. And then finally after five years, one works. So I think the key is not being stuck on any individual project is get out there, put out there, put it everywhere it needs to go. And then you're done then move on to the next one. So you should always have like a, I think a, your number one priority, you should have five priorities. You should be like, I got a pilot, got the short story, got all these things and they're not all moving. You should go get that script, move it to the finish line, get that short story, get it to anthology and just check them off. Cause even if you had unlimited time, there's no way you could do everything at once. The mm -hmm. key, I think more often than not is get as far as it could be. And then it's like putting money in the bank. You start getting interest, you know, you start getting that return because you've done that work because you put it out there but if you're deluded doing too many things at once or you're rushing out drafts that you didn't think of the ideas and you're just doing all sorts of aimless work and you're floating around or you have too many different genres you're exploring if that's your period where you're in your life this is your discovery time where you just kind of figure out your voice that's fine but if you're like i am effective this is what i'm going to do then you should go, all right, which genre am I going to dominate? I'm going to really focus on it, be a master of it. I'm going to watch all the movies in that space. I'm going to be an expert on these kind of Westerns, or I'm going to be an expert on these kind of rom-coms. And just drill down and know who in the scene is, know who's writing on those movies, engage in that community on Twitter. Be the expert. People need your help. We need an expert. We need somebody who knows the spy genre. And you know all the 60s and 70s spy films. You know all about James Bond. You're the go-to person. Mm -hmm. You're in a conversation. You could talk about it. But if you just dabble in all these different areas where you watch a few movies here, a few movies here, you write a little bit, the dabbler is fine if you're just kind of like on your on, on the search for who you are. And that's all right. Like I'm not knocking that. But if you're like, hey, I'm in pragmatic mode, go, I want to be the best YA writer out there. And I'm going to like keep writing those types of scripts and learning game better. Because you might take 10 scripts. It might be 20 scripts. It doesn't matter. But if you're learning each time, you're getting better. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a little echo chamber where no one's reading your scripts, you're just throwing them at reps, you're not going to know if you're good or not. But I do think that there's already tools now that will allow you to know. I wouldn't say objectively because there's always outliers, but to a good degree, whether or not your work is resonating. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's good. Um, how... We have one more uh, question from the chat, but before that, I just wanted to ask you, how many query emails do you get on average a week, and how receptive are you to cold queries? Should anyone want to reach out to you? I get a, I get a lot. I mean, sometimes it's like 
sometimes I'll see like 30 in my uh, email and I'm just like, Oh God, like there's a lot of them. And some of them once in a blue moon really get my interest, mm-hmm. uh, the request. I think the problem with them is that the ideas aren't exciting. Like mm-hmm. I have to like, think about this way. I have a list of my clients work that I got to read. I have people that are making recommendations in my own social network that are vetted. It's a lot. And then I have this to put on top of that. So he needs in a lot of ways, the idea needs to be so good that I go, despite all my responsibilities, I still want to read. And I think sometimes people are not aware of how good their idea is. So mm-hmm. they're like, this is the best thing ever. And you're like, this doesn't make any sense or doesn't work. So once in a while I'll have a time open, totally open. So feel free to send them, but just know I love genre. That's my, that's, that's where I like to work in. Um, I want a very short email that just says, Hey, what's up? Here's my log line. And if there's anything very invaluable that I should know about them, that differentiates them as any other writer, send that. And if I like, it, I'll send you a script release to, um, to sign, but it should be more complicated than that I don't need somebody to say, I'm talking to all these people. This is what I'm doing. And this I'm in the industry. Like, I don't need a lot of narrative. Just give me exactly the goods. What did you write? that is your best script that gets incredible results. Mm -hmm. I don't need to know about anything else. And then at that point, I might, I might take a look, but it it just needs to be simple and easy for me to pick up my phone, get that email and just click and go, do I like this idea? Yes. More. Or I don't like idea. You know, not interested. Right. Um, and so the last question we'll wrap it up with is from Himson Chan in the chat says, if someone is a multi-hyphenate talent, would you recommend a rep in each respective field? For example, a lit manager separate from an acting manager or one manager to cover it all. I think it depends. I have a client who's an author and I rep the film and TV rights, Mm -hmm. but there is still a book agent dealing with publishers. And that works. So I don't think there's one size fits all. I think it's really dependent on your, um, your reps. So if you are an actor who's also a writer, you know, there might be an actor there. And there are also, you know, there are times where people go, I'm a voice actor. I do voice work. And then there's a voice rep. So, I mean, like your team could be pretty big. Mm-hmm. You could have, you know, if you think about at least in the, as an agencies go, you get a multiple agents, you know, film, TV, you know, you get people working with you uh, as an influencer. I mean, it depends on your, your, your app, but I don't think there's like a template. I think you have to talk to each individual potential rep and see what they're interested in covering. And they may cover more or they might go, you know what? I only cover a small part of it. You need to get yourself an actor uh, reps, but I'm only covering you on the script side. So it just depends, it, you know, and, and there are managers who rep pretty large swath of types of people that have more responsibilities. So I think you just got to figure out who you want to work with and then kind of build it around that person uh, as you expand your team. Yeah. I mean, just from my perspective, having worked at CIA, I would say if you have an agent and a manager, it probably 
one manager may be good enough, meaning like signing with Peter, even if you're an actor, and I'm assuming Peter, you don't send your most of your writers out on uh, on, on on castings, on, on auditions and things. But if they have an agent as well at an agency and that agency has talent man talent agents and lit agents, then they'll figure it out on their end, right? But if you only have a manager, then getting someone like Peter for the lit side and then getting a talent manager on the for the acting side, I think is obviously uh, would be a smart move because you guys run in different circles. You have different contacts and you spend your day doing different things. Like you're not going to make as much time to send people out on auditions. Um, so whereas an acting manager would not really send uh, act writers out on generals with, with executives and they don't have the same network, the same contact base. Um, even if they could get someone a meeting, the, the time it would take to do that and build that base was just not something that they're going to be doing because they're getting their clients out on auditions. But again, if if you have a writer client who happens to want to act and they also have an agent, well, that agent probably, you know, if they're a decently sized agency, mid-level or above, they there's talent agents that will probably handle that. So that's just my Yeah, I mean, yeah, it depends. Uh, your agency has all the support to handle that component or you might have a very specific thing that neither your agent or manager does and you have somebody if you're doing pre you're at a convention and then you're like you know getting paid to show up or like you know speaking reps you know right Some no absolutely you might have like you could be uh getting paid to do speeches yeah you know and that's a whole other little little boutique agency that's going to get you in front of a large audience and get you paid to, to speak so i mean it's pretty wide of a spectrum i think your first thing is who's the rep you most want to work with and then locking into somebody that really gets you. And mm -hmm. then if it's at an agency, then maybe it's just getting the manager. If it's just the manager first, maybe getting looking out the agency or other managers mm -hmm. who cover those spaces. But but just focus who you want to work with. Don't just get some weird quasi Swiss Army knife person. Just make sure it's a person <laughs> that you actually you know really love working with. Right. Because I've seen a few of those quasi Swiss Army reps, and they're usually not at big agencies or big management companies or you know have great reputations um if they represent you know uh, uh comedians and magicians and writers and you know it's probably i need, not I, need a magi I need a magician i'm gonna call them right now having a kid right. a birthday party <laughs> right uh so yeah you're probably better off mixing uh you know getting specialists for everything you want to do um thank you peter for coming on today it was an absolute pleasure um be sure to follow peter on twitter it's at Peter Katz one, not Peter Katz two. I don't know who that is, but Peter Katz one. Um, and thank you for taking the time to answer all our questions today, Peter. Thanks for having me. Uh, and all of you out there listening, thank you for spending part of your Saturday with us. We'll see you next Saturday at 3 p.m. Pacific for our Meet the Manager Q&A with Lit Management Producer Lee Stovey. Uh, so thank you all for watching and participating. We really appreciate it. And we will see you next time.